everyone, and welcome to The Build Podcast. I'm Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, where I help software companies accelerate growth and master my favorite area, pricing and packaging. That's why this season on Build, we're talking all about the art and science of pricing. Each week, I sit down with operators and experts to hear their pricing insights and experiences firsthand and answer some of our listeners' most burning pricing questions. Now on with the show. On today's episode of Build, I spoke to Lindsay and Pontep at Pluralsight. They lead product marketing and strategy, respectively, and have been key architects in Pluralsight's pricing and packaging. We talked about how to go about a major pricing rebuild, why you shouldn't wait years to change pricing, and Pluralsight's B2C to B go-to-market motion for selling into large enterprises. Lindsay and Pontep, thanks for joining the Build podcast. Could you give listeners a quick overview about yourselves and your backgrounds? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Lindsay. I'm the VP of Product Marketing at Pluralsight. I'm a B2B SaaS junkie and have been doing both product marketing and product management over the last few years. My name is Pontep. I am the head of growth strategy and operations, and I am also a technology junkie. I spent my time more in the consulting finance realm, but made my way back to technology where I feel like I fit in a little bit better. Awesome. And many listeners, I think, will be very familiar with Pluralsight, but could you talk a little bit more about the product, the target customer, and just the scale of the company? Yeah, sure. So our whole goal is to help people build technology skills at scale across their organization. So we predominantly sell to technology leaders in B2B organizations of all sizes that are looking to improve the skills of their technologists. So these folks are software developers, IT professionals, data analysts, security professionals, what have you. We went public last year ticker symbol is PS. And we serve 70% of the Fortune 500, have customers in over 150 countries. Yeah, super impressive. You know, you mentioned selling to technology leaders, including 70% of the Fortune 500, which is amazing. But one interesting element of Pluralsight that people might not be familiar with is the kind of B to C to B go to market motion where an individual can get started using the product and that could turn into a large enterprise customer. And you know, looking at the Zoom S1, we saw that that model is actually very similar to how Zoom goes to market. And it's extremely cost efficient and successful for their business. So I was wondering if you could talk more about how that model works at Pluralsight. Yeah, so the B2C to B model is interesting, right? Especially if you're trying to build efficiency within your business and to, you know, let's throw in some jargon here, reduce your acquisition costs, be more efficient with your spend and all that jazz. Effectively, Pluralsight's base was the consumer. It wasn't the businesses in the enterprise space. We've transitioned to that over the last few years. We migrate them up the B2C stack and we start to identify certain characteristics companies that they roll up into. And then we start to work with our sales team to reach out to certain decision makers, and then we transfer them over to the B2B platform. It sounds a lot more simple than it actually is. The mapping process of this is fairly technical, but we have seen a lot of success in this. And then a major element of you know making that kind of go-to-market strategy work is you know it starts off with an easy experience for users to get started with the product. Several companies on the podcast have had more of a classic freemium model, but it seems like Pluralsight takes a bit of a different approach. What have you found to be the most effective ways of using pricing to acquire those initial users in an account with as little friction as possible? 
The one thing I'd probably add to this is as we think about pricing, I would also make sure that we talk about packaging, especially within the SaaS-based environment. Pricing is a really strong lever to increase access, and that's effectively what we did. When you look at what we're doing across different regions of the world, India is a good example. They're much more price sensitive, so we can bring them into the funnel by reducing the price point there. But in order to do it effectively, there's a balance that occurs. So one, we need a path to monetization and it needs to be clear to the customer. And then two, we need to start to think about if we can't create that path to monetization, are there other benefits that we can derive from the customer with increase of usage of the product, data, et cetera? Yeah, and I would just add that, Kyle, while you're right, Pluralsight started, like Pontep mentioned, selling to individuals and has migrated up into the enterprise. It must have been about 18 months ago, two years ago, we did actually launch our first real freemium offering that is a combination of courses, our skill IQ, and also now our role IQ experiences on our platform. So we do have a freemium offering that helps people get into our product, experience it, see it, measure their skills, get a sense for what we're all about. And then if they want, if they choose to upgrade to get access to our full product. Packaging comes into play in kind of an interesting way in that model, right? Like how do you decide what features could be made freely available to folks versus what are you know more highly valuable or things that you want to reserve for those larger customers? When you actually look at our feature base, there are really two key types of features. There's the learner features, and then there's the enterprise features, which are typically around the analytics pieces. Those pieces are typically taken off the table because they don't provide much value to the end user, at least from a consumer standpoint. But we do a lot of research to figure out what's the most important for each specific consumer base. And then we start to tease out, if we released feature X versus feature Y, would it cannibalize our overarching sales? And we spent a lot of time over the last year really understanding the value of each feature and the impact on pricing and the impact on the cannibalization that it could take on our business. So it's a process across the board and it's a joint effort between the strategy side as well as Lindsay's organization to bring us insights from both a consumer perspective as well as an enterprise customer perspective. Yeah, and I'll just add to that that those insights then inform the go-to-market. So Kyle, to your point on premium, understanding the value component and then understanding, hey, how does this packaging drive how we take these out, how we're differentiating ourselves in the marketplace, and then you know, how does this align to our longer-term product strategy? You know, you both come from pretty different backgrounds, but are both passionate about pricing. When did you catch the pricing bug and start to realize the importance of pricing in SaaS? So I caught the pricing bug in my first product marketing role because I saw a pricing change implemented in all of the wrong ways. The pricing changes were informed by competitors' prices. They were really incremental. It wasn't based on value. There wasn't a lot of research that went into it. The sales team wasn't enabled properly. Like It was just really a disaster. But I was really curious about it. Like, wow, this doesn't seem like the way to do this. And then it was shortly thereafter that pricing actually moved over into my team. And so I thought, okay, here's a really great opportunity to learn and figure out how to do this in the optimal way. Mine's probably a little bit different than that. I was initiated 
during my first internships, I actually did an undergraduate. I went to General Mills and I was supposed to help do a packaging and pricing strategy for their cereal brands. And I had no clue the power of pricing and what it could actually do to top line PL. And to some extent, they let me play around with that, but it really started to help me to understand how valuable of a tool this is and how thoughtful we should actually be in crafting the pricing strategy. And I didn't actually realize that at the time, but it was the first little seed. There are a couple of other experiences that I had during my consulting days that tease out the importance of this. And here at Pluralsight, when I was leading packaging and pricing, it was even more exemplified of how important this is and how interesting this is. There's a lot of cool things that pricing can do. I mean, it's a very quantitative exercise and it's very scientific. And at the same time, there's a little bit of art to it as well. If you can get creative and have an impact with pricing and packaging for a cereal brand, there's a lot more that you can play around with, a lot more ways that you can sort of repackage things. So you guys alluded to that Pluralsight went through some packaging and pricing changes somewhat recently. I'm curious, what were some of the signals that you looked at that told you it's time to revisit pricing and packaging? I would call it almost a ground up restructuring and rebuild. There were some signals along the way, and I would probably say three major signals, and Lindsay can add to this. But the first one is we didn't update our prices for a really, really long time. So to believe that the pricing structure that had been in place is still applicable today is probably not true. I'll add to that that for a very long time, years, in fact, I believe, we had one skew for businesses. Just imagine that, like we had one offering. I think Lindsay's hitting around the head. And I think the other things that support what we're saying is the product had changed so much, right? We went from one SKU to two SKUs to three. Now we have multiple SKUs and multiple experiences. So not only have you not changed the price, but you've added a huge amount to it. So to believe that your pricing is correct in that state of time, probably also not true. And I think that, you know, the last piece of this is our business model and who we were targeting fundamentally changed. We used to be a consumer-based company with one SKU. And then we started this evolution into the enterprise space, a completely different customer set, completely different price point, needs, desires, willingness to pay. So it's really the combination of those three things, time since update, the evolution of the product and the maturity of the business model that were the clear signals to us that something probably needs to change or we're probably leaving a lot of value on the table. And could you take us behind the scenes of this pricing rebuild? What did the process look like and who was involved? When we started this journey of changing the pricing, it really was from the ground up to really understand and assess the capabilities that we had from a pricing and packaging perspective, to really reformulate, to define, to develop how we think about pricing. We used to formulate pricing with one methodology, and then we started to move to a different methodology, value-based through a lot of research. We stood up processes and controls governed through a pricing committee to help us make the decisions that we needed to. We stood up infrastructure and you know other controls like guardrails to help also guide us through this. And one of the biggest things is we made very clear decision makers to help you know not only guide the conversations, but also to make the final decisions so we weren't spinning our wheels and wondering, should we do this or shouldn't we do this? 
I would just add to that, you know, I think a lot of especially younger startups think of pricing as sort of one and done or maybe something you consider refreshing from time to time. But really what Pontep was able to do, maybe even more important than the pricing and packaging changes themselves, is build this process and get this really ingrained into how the business operates. And so I think that operational muscle is the thing that will have even more lasting impact on the business. As you were launching different changes, how do you measure you know, whether it was successful and what was working and what wasn't working? This is literally the key question. We took a lot of time up front, really defining our hypothesis and what the measures of success would look like for different stages of the pricing evolution at Pluralsight. So in phase one, it was really setting up the processes. The metrics of success would be, do we have the right processes in place? Do we have decision makers? Is this replicable? As we think about other things like actually launching changes, are we gaining market share? Are our apples going up? And there are different metrics, but effectively, we have a customized set of metrics for each different pricing and packaging initiative to help us gauge, was this awesome or did we kind of take a wrong turn somewhere? Whether it's good or bad, there's lots of learning experience. And I think to what Lindsay said, it's an ongoing process where we continuously learn and we evolve. You know, when you look back on the process, what were some of the top lessons that you learned? This will be interesting to get Lindsay's perspective on this. If I take a step back and I pull myself 50,000 feet up, it's not really process. That was the biggest lesson learned. It was more about the idea of having the correct systems and architecture to support pricing and packaging changes and getting the company aligned have been some of the more interesting things that can either be accelerants to your ability to execute on pricing or to prevent you from doing what you want to do. Well, could you talk a little bit more about that and some of the specifics? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I did not realize, and this is probably my own immaturity in terms of pricing when I first started, was the complexity and the interconnectivity of all the systems that need to be working together in order to make a pricing change happen. So for example, you might do some really cool research that says, price your product at, I'm going to make this up, 35 bucks. In order to facilitate that, there are systems that run across multiple organizations that need to start to talk to each other. There's the catalog system that may sit in one division. There's the front-end website that sits in another division. There's the architecture and the systems that sit within finance to help reconcile that. And then there's the actual development work that needs to go underway. And in order to actually take your price point from research to idea to execution, it's that executional piece tying all those systems together, that actually becomes probably one of the more difficult pieces. And so looking back, it wasn't fully clear, at least to me, how the relationship needed to work. And now it's very clear that that's one of the things that I would probably you know, recommend to anybody that's doing a price change, especially at large scale. Do you have the right system architecture in place? Do they all talk to each other? And do you have alignment across the board? Otherwise, again, your idea will pretty much sit on paper until you get those kinks worked out. There's a piece of getting this operational muscle built that's about really evangelizing or educating different teams, different functions, people at different levels about the value and impact of pricing and packaging to get them on board with, like what Pontep said, all of these changes or prioritizing backlogs or, you know, even from a sales perspective, how do we tackle the change management with customers, the market at large, 
etc. So, you know, coming up with the ideal price point or ideal packaging based on the research is definitely a critical component, but driving that change and enabling that collaboration across the business, we learned a lot. What are some like specific tactics you'd recommend for others in your shoes? Like how do you convince people that, you know, aren't thinking about pricing regularly or, you know, haven't seen a change in years and just don't realize the importance of it? What do you say to them that helps change their mind? I kind of always start from a customer value perspective. And that was something that we talked a lot about internally to tie this back to, hey, look, at the end of the day, are we objectively providing more value to our customers? Is that value worth something? You know, do we believe in what our product is doing and what it's accomplishing for our customers? And you kind of have to start from that place because it's not actually about the dollars and cents. It's really about a value conversation. I would second that 1 million percent. And I would also say that after you get past that, then it becomes, at least to me, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, the dollars and cents, but it's after all the things that Lindsay just mentioned, because those are the critical components to it. But then afterwards, to get people bought in, there's a lot of value that you're potentially, as a company, leaving on the table. And I think as we think about the shift from private company to public company, the focus hasn't fundamentally changed, but there is a sense of accountability to the shareholders as well. And so we also think about this in terms of keeping the lights on because there's a lot more value that we can create for Pluralsight. And by adjusting our prices, we actually can reinvest the capital that we get back in into developing a much better product to solve the pain points that they're experiencing right now much more effectively. Well, I'm also curious. So some of the other folks that were interviewing on the podcast have a different kind of area where pricing lives in the organization. Like sometimes it sits in the product org or sometimes it sits in the product marketing org or sometimes it's a function of marketing. But here, you know, pricing is owned in terms of like the business strategy, corporate strategy group. I'm just curious, what are the pros and cons of that from your perspective? And what do you see as like advantages to the model that Pluralsight set up? Pulling ourselves out of Pluralsight, I think pricing is probably one of the most politically charged topics that most companies will go through. And the packaging component as well, because there's no faster way to blow up the value of your company or to build the value of your company than to change your pricing. There's no faster way to ostracize your development teams and those that are creating your product by taking away something from the users, right? So really highly politically charged topic. The benefit of it living within a centralized team like strategy and business operations is the fact that we're pretty much, in a lot of capacities, Switzerland. There's no skin in the game. There's no potential bias that can be interjected. We're going to march towards what's the best for the company. It provides a lot of good conversations. It allows us to force the conversations that are necessary. Lindsay articulated you know, lots of interesting things that we actually talk about before we make a price change, getting sales on board. Sometimes that's a very tricky conversation and coming from a third party actually helps it to be beneficial. I think where pricing lives is highly dependent on the stage of growth of the business. So I think you typically see in really small startups that pricing often lives with the product teams. Sometimes mistakenly, it lives with sales. I definitely not recommend that for obvious reasons. And then as the business matures, hopefully they make the wise choice of hiring a product marketer. And then you generally see it living with product marketing for a while. I know a lot of different B2B SaaS companies that 
at a certain stage of growth, they implement, like Pontep said, a strategy team or a strategy and ops team. And I definitely think there's value to having that neutral third party. I will say, though, part of what I think has been really valuable about our partnership and why you typically see pricing with product marketing, again, in earlier stage companies, is keeping that focus on the customer and the buyer and not letting the biases of sales and product influence pricing too much. And since the charter of product marketing is, hey, we need to understand the market and our buyers, they're probably, again, at certain stages, best positioned to not only do the pricing research, but also execute on the implementation. Here, what worked really well is that Pontev's team and my team had a really close relationship and we partnered on, okay, once we had a decision on pricing, how do we then go take that out to market since we already had that built as part of our launch motion? You can see the dichotomy that could exist if pricing lived solely within product or if it ever lived within sales, right? On one end of the spectrum, you have an organization that wants continuous usage, they realize that pricing can be a barrier and in some instances may drop it too low. On the other end, you have the salespeople that have probably a very different mentality, right? A very, we need to charge more. It's always higher priced. The true answer is exactly what Lindsay said. There's probably a happy medium based upon doing research with customers and really figuring out what they want. You know, when I look at the relationship that Lindsay's organization and my organization have had to drive pricing, we found a pretty good happy medium where we complement each other's skills. From my experience, I personally love the involvement of product marketing in pricing decisions because I think that as Lindsay mentioned, it's really the voice of the customer and making sure that's fundamental to how the organization thinks about how much value they're providing and then how much they can charge for it. And then also it's a function that is constantly working in a cross-functional way to launch new products or new initiatives for a company. And so any sort of pricing change is really similar process to a new product launch in a lot of ways, where there's a lot of bringing every different group along, making sure there's a lot of coordination, making sure the sales team is enabled and making sure it's monitored and successful in the field. And I like that idea of collaborating and having one group that is doing a lot of the analytics and the strategy element, and then also close collaboration with the product marketing org. We've got a couple of questions from some listeners, actually. And the first one is from John Schur, who's at AppQs. His question was, when do you know that pricing is too low? Do you have any rules of thumb you consider? I don't know if you do know if it's too low, but there are some potential leading indicators. As you do research, the perceived quality of your product is low. That could be an indirect manifestation that your price is too low, which influences that behavior, that thought. Two, you're pricing competitively. You're pricing towards what your counterparts are going to market with rather than really understanding and assessing the value of the offering that you truly have. Superficially, they may feel the same, but in market, the value might be exemplified very differently. And I think the last one, this is probably the most clear indicator, is if your pricing is kind of like spaghetti on the wall, you literally made it up by just throwing out a number that felt right. Those are three kind of good leading indicators that you may be pricing too low. And then another question we've gotten is about discounting and how should SaaS companies think about discounting as a lever of managing price? 
We know that it exists. We know that it's a lever to drive growth. And we know that in some capacities, it runs rapidly. You know, candidly, I don't know what the right answer is in terms of discounting. There is a certain level of discounting that needs to occur in order for you to penetrate larger companies. For example, it would be interesting to see a company penetrate, you know, 100% of their customer base at full freight or, you know, a company that might be 20,000 seats and you get 20,000 seats at 100% of the price. Realistically, in order for you to get in there, you need to scale your pricing to increase that access. I think we've been built upon this concept, which makes it hard to rip out of the go-to-market motion, right? Costco, Sam's Club, really, really good examples about how you as the consumer are not gonna buy 85 rolls of toilet paper at the same cost as one roll of toilet paper. I would add on to what Pontep said. I think, again, for a lot of startups and sales teams that are newly forming, there's this drive to just close the deal, right? Any dollar is a good dollar. And so to Pontep's point, discounting can run rampant. And so discounting as a really strategic tool can make a lot of sense, but really only after you've built out a value-based pricing strategy, which we know a lot of startups have not done that strategically in a data-driven way. I think that's great advice. And I have one final question for you both. What's one SaaS company that you admire from a pricing and packaging standpoint? I'm a big believer in value metrics. So I admire any company that aligns and orients their pricing and packaging, probably their packaging more importantly, to really clear outcomes or value metrics for their customers. I don't know that I have one company that I admire from a packaging and pricing perspective. Web of lies. I know there's one. I'll give you one. Netflix. Netflix's pricing and packaging is phenomenal. The way that they customize the video content in certain markets based upon their demographic, it's uncanny. Here's a really clear example. In Australia, Netflix went into the market at, you know, I can't remember the exact number, 20% below the competitive price points. And it's not because of really competitors. It was because of the piracy that was going on in there until they gained full-on access, and then they started to ratchet up the price. They do this in different markets, and you actually see this across the board. It's just so subtle, but it's because they understand their customer and the value that they bring so, so, so well. Yeah, I think Netflix is a great example. And a lot of people think about Netflix and pricing and they think back to the sort of quickster debacle when they unbundled streaming and the DVDs. But actually, more recently, they've had very successful price increases where they didn't lose any subscribers when they raised prices. They smartly sort of timed the pricing increases with launching new content and adding more value for the customer. They raised prices while introducing multiple packages to give their customers different options. So a lot of things that they're doing well. And so people should be thinking about that versus what happened several years ago. Well, Lindsay Pontep, thanks so much for being on the Build Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Thanks for tuning into the Build Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.